It's that time of the week again. You are about to participate in a great adventure. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop? What the hell do you think you're doing? It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris. Oh my God! As they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. I wouldn't do that if I were you. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. It's the gift that keeps on giving the whole year. As well as the music of today. Excuse me while I whip this out. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Who are those guys? Digital Kill the Radio Star starts Come on, quit stalling! All right, so we are back again at the Nashville Rock and Pod for what I think is probably our final interview of the day. Uh, Chris is sitting this one out. He is listening to uh, our friends in Roxy Blue as they are performing live right now. And so Kate and I are here with a very special guest. Kate, I'm going to throw it to you and let you introduce him. Yeah, I mean, this is a special one for me, guys. I mean, a lot of you know that listen um, and, and kind of know, you know, my musical history. The Saigon Kick is a is a, uh, a special band for me and has been one of my one of my favorites. And uh, we're sitting down right now with uh, with Jason Beeler, one of the uh, the founders and. Uh, uh, original members of Saigon Kick and has done a lot of stuff on his own as well and uh, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us, Jason. Thank you very much for having me. When you say founder, it makes me feel like I started a bank or a, or a hedge fund. That's right. That's right. <laughs> You're one of the forefathers. Forefathers. Yeah. That's right. But, you know, Jason, one of the things I mean, I, I, I want to ask you about and I have for a long time and, and that's, you know, I, I think tone and, and, and sound and consistency and continuity when you think about a sound. I mean, you, you always had that to me. And when I think about Saigon Kick specifically, I mean, you know, it, you jump into Peppermint Tribe or Hostile Youth or Torture, like the first five seconds of the song, you know it's Saigon Kick and you know it's Jason. How conscious was that tone and that crunch that you had was that a very, very conscious effort to have that consistency, or did, was that somewhat of a natural evolution? I think it comes from being a really strange, like a, a music fan of just so many different types of things. Like I was literally going to see Barry Manilow, and then the next day I'd go see Ozzy on the Blizzard of Oz tour. Or, so I liked all kinds of music, and I think um, as long as I thought it was compelling, you know, as long as it was cool. So it could be good heavy, music's good music. Good music is good music. That's how I always felt. So. Um, and also growing up kind of isolated in the sense I wasn't in L.A., I wasn't in New York, I was in Florida. Oh, what part of Florida? South Florida. Okay. Um, so Fort Lauderdale, Miami area. Um, kind of gave us this weird ability to not think like everybody else. I think sometimes when you're in L.A. at that time, everybody was, you know, in the, the Motley Crue hair kind of thing and everyone was dressing the same and everyone was rehearsing right next to each other and everyone was hearing what everyone else was doing and aware of what everyone else was doing and seeing what everyone else was doing. So, while in certain senses it, it, it was limiting, 
in many ways it was really kind of interesting the fact that we were able to kind of you know borrow all of our influences but they came together differently than they would have had we been in the middle of the New York you know punk scene sure or any of those scenes yeah um, and I think because of that and maybe being blissfully ignorant to the ramifications we became super as, as a writer I became super confident in doing what I do I knew how to do what I did you know if that makes sense it does and I just did that you know, I yeah. wasn't trying necessarily to go out there and compete with Skid Row or whoever was happening yeah. at the moment. I, that's a nice segue, actually, into into uh, a, a, a question that, that I'll skip to, actually, and that's that, you know, in my introduction, I met you earlier here at the at the expo, and I, I and told you... And you said I was your favorite person here. That, that's right, that's right. And, you know, my introduction to Saigon Kick was not the debut, it was it was the Lizard, so 92, and then obviously I went, I went back from there. Um, you know, and in all the way from the debut and, and the lizard, I mean, I always thought, even at the time, even in '92, I was conscious, and I felt like, as from a fan's perspective, I felt like it was almost bridge music, if you will, because I was a fan of some of the late '80s, early '90s music. I was also a fan of some of the things that were coming, maybe with the change in the musical climate, and I always felt like, especially when I tried to turn people on to Saigon Kick, even now. It, it was kind of a bridge between the two, if you will, because I certainly never threw you guys in the category of some of the, you know, the the, the, the late '80s. You mentioned, you know, Motley Crue, the LA scene. You guys were unique. You were different for sure. Um, I mean, it, maybe it was, you know, blissful ignorance, like you said, because you guys were out of LA. Were, did you ever view Saigon Kick as that kind of a, you know, a, a median between the two? I mean, were you conscious of the think, change I mean, in the musical? We... You know, I, I think if anything, the, the most influential band that really kind of changed things for me and for the Saigon Kick would be Jane's Addiction. You know, so seeing them early on on the Nothing Shocking, before we, the EP tour, whatever that was, Triple X, I think it was like, but I saw them open for Iggy Pop at the Cameo Theater in Miami in front of like maybe 80 people. Wow. Um, and I was just like, this, they were the first, because I didn't feel like I was a hot guy. So, like, my career wasn't going to be developed on me wearing, like, tight pants and jumping around <laughs> like that. But I didn't want to be in a new wave band either. I didn't want to become a synth pop. Like, right. that wasn't my thing either. So, Jane's Addiction, and to a lot of their credit, Soundgarden potentially too, were these bands that were doing heavy music, but it just felt real. It wasn't like how fast my car can go and my chick's super hot. It was just, there was something in there. And then at the same time, being such a Beatle fan and such a, such a Queen fan, you know, and always being focused on the melodic aspects, I think that's probably in our head more the area we were trying to run down. Like, I still want to be melodic, still want to have all the harmony stuff that we love doing, um, bringing all these tribal influences, bringing the aggression, and not be so campy and um, not that there's anything wrong with that style of music. I mean, camp away. Yeah. Um, Tribal influences. I mean, that, that's a spot-on description for some of the Saigon Kick sound. You're right. I mean, it's a, I've that, never really thought about that or heard it described that way. But and I, and I think you know, early on, before the ballad became so you know kind of overwhelmingly successful, you know, we were touring with the Ramones. We toured with Faith No More. We played with Soundgarden. We were playing with a lot of bands that kind of accepted us for who we were, until the ballad got so big that we were kind of in this weird, like you said, no man's land. Um, Extreme, I think, suffered the same fate. I think uh, King's X, to a certain degree, suffered. They didn't, you know, they were, we weren't accepted by any of the hair bands. Or, you know, I don't mean that as a derogatory term. I'm saying, like, the bands that were big at the time, sure. whether it's Warrants or, you know, they didn't want to go out with right. It had nothing to do with Saigon King. And yet, the ballad created a dynamic where the grunge bands couldn't touch us. 
after that became successful. So we really kind of got stuck. Well, let me ask you this. So when Saigon Kick came out, and it, I'm glad you mentioned Jane's Addiction because I always kind of put y'all in, in my mind. Y'all kind of y'all kind of faced the same dilemma. And what I mean is, that was a time where you had to check a box. You were either, you know, the quote-unquote hair metal, or you were grunge, or you were at the time, you know, boy bands and, and, and pop music, you know, uh, Whitney Houston and stuff. Were you or you ever, were Saigon Kid. What, what I'm saying, saying is, were you ever worried because you guys kind of maybe had a little, half a check mark here, half a check mark here? Were you worried that how the record company was going to market you? I think the record company was worried about how the record company was going to market us. I mean, we were very fortunate to work with a guy named Jason Flom. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and he was always great to me. And he literally would sit there, and I remember clearly, like, this, like, dude, I have no idea what the fuck you guys are doing. Just, I guess, do it. Um, which is amazing compared to what you always hear about, you know. Especially so he back would, then. Yeah, I mean, he let us do what we did for better. incredible. You guys had the runway to, to you know, to... He to didn't... He knew enough to know that he didn't know what we were doing. But people were responding. And, you know, when we were drawing a lot of people in South Florida, and, and as a local band, we were drawing 1,000, 2,000 people. You know, he said, like, there's something happening. So just do what you do. Um, well, let me ask you this: Do you ever do you think that the way Love Is on the Way was the way it blew up? Do you think that was a blessing and a curse, so to speak? Obviously, obviously, there's increased album sales, increased um, you know awareness and, and popularity. But you, like you were saying, some of those bands that you were opening with then didn't want to have anything to do with you because they thought you were something else based on one song. Right. You, must, you must have confused the hell out of Soccer Moms as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, so my gosh. It was, I mean. uh, the pit got very strange shortly <laughs> after. Uh, um, I get the question. I've just come to the point in my life where I'm like, we wrote a song that touched a lot of people, Soccer yeah. Moms included. Um, my intention was never to sit down and write a hit. Just like it wasn't on the first record when we had a song called Come Take Me Now, which is a ballad of similar strength. Yep. Um, so it seems to me, we put it on the record, we knew what it was, uh, we knew what we did. It'd be really weird to be like, I think that, or feel weird about it, or apologize, you know, it's like, not apologize for it, or not, it's like, that's who we were. And I think, like you're talking about, the, the perception at the time that hurt us is what I at least found in my travels lately, is that has made those records relevant more now than they would have been otherwise. So, like, even talking to people, like, you know, hearing really nice things from Corey Taylor of Slipknot, mm -hmm. or uh, Chris Kale from Five Finger Death Punch, or Devin Townsend, or all these people, like, coming out saying, like, dude, I, I got what you guys, like, that, you know, it's, it, I don't think those records would have had the impact or had the lifespan they've had had they all been 12 versions of the Lizard song or the right. last, you know, I think it wouldn't have been... Yeah. You know, it would have made it had a bigger immediate life, but kind of would have worn away. To, to, to be fair, though, I mean, I you know, it, from my perception, I mean, Love is on the Way, which is the ballad we're talking about, obviously. I mean, that was a completely different type of ballad. Was it a power the, ballad? Uh, yeah, it certainly wasn't a power ballad. It, it was different than some of the other things in the late 80s, early 90s. So it was a ballad, you know. I mean, uh, a lot of people that perhaps, you know, uh, wouldn't gravitate towards cruelty or hostile youth, for example, on that record, you know, probably loved that. So there maybe was a confusing element there, the soccer mom joke oh, that you sure. said. But it, it was a unique ballad. It was not a traditional, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I mean, great, great song. I, well, thank you. Um, I, I think, 
you know, you, look, I mean, I've always been, to this day, I mean, I do what I feel like I should do for better or for worse. And what I want to make creatively, musically, is I, I just, I've never been in the mindset of like, what's happening at the moment? You know, should I, you know, oh, ambient punk is better now than it would be, you know, I just wake up and if I feel like making an ambient punk record, that's the record I'm making. And there's definitely ramifications for that. I mean, I, I could definitely make things easier on myself and could have made things easier on ourselves, um, being way more market conscious. Mm. But I've been lucky enough. Look, I've lived my whole life making music. You don't get much luckier. Mm. I mean, there's bands that are bigger. I mean, Metallica did it, but I mean, I don't have a job. I mean, I've been, I, I, I'm as lucky as you get. I yeah. Mean, you know what I mean? It's like, um, so it worked out. And to get to do what I want to do and how I want to do it, um, yeah. You know, I, I tend not to go back and say, oh, would it have been, maybe we would have been Nirvana if we didn't have this or that didn't happen at the time. Because, you know, something else might have happened. Or, you know, or, or, you know, you never, to go down that road, I think it's kind of a, there's no answer for me. So I just know I like making music. Yeah. And I got a big house. <laughs> After the Lizard, when you guys recorded Water, I mean, you, you obviously uh, stepped in when Matt left the band and, and took over on lead vocals. I mean, uh, you know, you guys always, you know, were crazy with the harmonies and, you know, crazy from a good perspective. How natural of a progression was that for you when you, when you I mean, was that a big decision point to not go external and bring in a vocalist and for you to step into that, to that role? When Matt left, we were in Sweden. Uh, recording in the getting ready to record the record, so uh, we were isolated from thinking, uh, which is a dangerous thing for young guys to be. You know, we had everything was paid for, the studios paid for, the hotels, um, and I also wrote and demoed the vast majority of, of stuff. So, like a lot of those harmonies, if they were done on demos that I actually initially did. Um, so, like the three of us sitting here, you know, without thinking, oh my God, the blonde-haired frontman that everybody loves is leaving. He's like, let's, let's make a record. And that's what, that's what we made the record. And it wasn't until we got back that I was like starting to go, oh, wait a minute. People are going to be pissed. Or this might not be the best strategy. You know, like I said, blissful ignorance. It was a wonderful creative time because we made a really... An amazing inter album. Interesting I mean, record. I mean, it was fun to make that record. Um, but I totally get it. I mean, and... and the interesting thing I was just talking to somebody else about it was that, you know, the first two records have their home with people that love those records and will tell you that those are the only side of the kick records you need. And there's a group of people who say, well, no, it's the second, it's the water record, the devil. Those are the most, that's where I love the band. And there's people who like them all and whatever, but that's, to me, that's good. Yeah. You know, the pieces of music from each time found their own with different people. When you think about the legacy that, that, that you know, you with Saigon Kick and the things that you've done, I mean, you guys have cemented that legacy. You're still, you know, you're still building upon it. But for you personally, and this is fair warning, I mean, this is a loaded question, but for you, Jason, I mean, what's been the most meaningful and fulfilling moment if you look across the landscape of your of your career, if you can point to, to, to one? I mean, there's been so many. Like I, like I said, you know, I'm just... It doesn't, it's not wasted on me how lucky I've been and how fortunate I am. Um, in terms of pivotal moments, I mean, going to see my first rock concert, going to see my rock, first rock concert with Ozzy Osbourne and Randy Rhodes uh, as a kid. Oh, wow. Um, and then I got to open for Ozzy in, at the Budokan in Japan. Wow. Uh, became friends with Zach Wilde, so I'm standing on stage behind Zach's rig in 
a legendary venue, the Cheap Trick Live, and all these. They, and it was like one of those Lion King moments where I'm just like, you know, holy! I was the kid. Was watching. he bearded or unbearded at that point? Pre-beard. This was this was, this was a sexy Zach Wild, <laughs> slim, slim sexy we used to call. Him. Uh, but so, so I mean, th- there was such a Lion King element to like, oh my God, I was the kid in the crowd that went to see Ozzy Osbourne play, and now I'm supporting him in a venue that the Beatles played, Queen played, you know, it goes on and on and on and on and on, becoming friends with not only my friend, I'm standing on at the guitar rig, so just couldn't reverse the angle of positions anymore. That was really important um, in a cool way, you know, yeah. just going like, wow, that's, that's neat. You know, that's kind of a cool sure. thing. Yeah. Um, it's incredible at that moment that you were able to kind of shake yourself and take the time to appreciate it. We talked to a lot of people doing this podcast, and more than one time we've had people that have said, you know, they said, I, I, I wish at the moment when we got a record deal, or I wish at the moment that we opened for Ozzy Osbourne, to your point, that I had appreciated it more. And they've told us at this point in their career, they can look back and really appreciate it more than they allow themselves to take the time to do it. So it's 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 cool to hear you say that at the time that you you know you realize wow this is uh this is this is what I wanted when I was a kid. This yeah, is, man, you know, I, this I, is the good stuff. And I think there's a couple different types of people. There there are rock stars, and there's musicians, and sometimes there's rock star musicians. But I've never been really interested in the in the going to the mall and being recognized at Hot Topic. You know, I've been interested in getting to work with some amazing people. I mean, the fact that I'm getting to jam tonight with David Ellison is like, you know, Loopin' Buds for a few years, but it's like, right. dude. Teach me moment. How cool is that? Yeah. You know, that he asked me to come play. It's like, that's, you know, I mean, like I said, it doesn't get any, as far as I'm concerned, I'm pretty lucky. All right, so I have two final questions for you, so we want to be respectful of your time and the other podcasts. Can I bother me um, for those that aren't familiar with your solo music, kind of t- t- tell people about your solo albums. Well, it's not really, the whole process started at, as a experiment for myself. I had a studio, I was working with a ton of bands, Nonpoint, Skindred, had a label, all this stuff that I was doing for years. And I just got dawned on me that you know, I haven't had a chance to do what I want to do or make music the way I wanted to make music anymore. So as a writing experiment, I decided what I was going to do is put these kind of uh, limitations on myself and say, I'm going to write, mix, produce, release a song in about 24 hours from start to finish. I don't want to spend three weeks producing it and getting snared. I just want to write as a kind of experiment in writing. Just get sharpen that tool. Just better and better and better and better. So about two or three years now, I've released 150 songs uh, on Bandcamp, uh, I say. Uh, and because I wasn't really thinking of it as a commercial venture, more just really a writing experiment, Strangely enough, it's taken on a life of its own. It's become fairly popular. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's really, you know, selfishly, it's not about trying to have a hit or trying to, like, you know, change. It's just really discovering me as a musician more. It's more selfish in the sense of, like, you know, where can I go? What can I do? You know, what haven't I done? What's next? Kind of stuff. I get the point in different people's careers. It's not like, you know, no one wants to see certain, you know, it's not about that game to me of, trying to sell tons of records it's just about writing stuff that I feel is I'm getting better well and finally you've had a you've had a really long career and the record industry has changed dramatically since you started you are almost like the king of self-promotion on uh, your uh, on your social media how, how has that changed because now you're probably in more in control of your image and, and, and your appearances and everything that you probably have been at any point in your career. Yeah, and I mean, I, I think, 
Well, it's kind of interesting. Everything I put on social media is, for the most part, nonsensical and absurdist. But even like some of the stuff you posted about your appearance here was, yeah. was just hysterical. Well, so, so I try not to make it like I don't like I don't know that I would have want to watch Jimmy Page making waffles. You know, like there was a mystique about what he did. Right. But I'm not Jimmy Page, so I, I figure you know letting people know who I am in terms of my absurdist sense of humor, um, you can do that, and and I can engage people more. You used to only be able to talk to people every two years. You know, you make a record, you'd be on tour for an hour long. Right. So now I can kind of communicate a little bit better. This is, it's a, it is what it is. I don't know that it's better. I don't know that it's worse. But it's. Uh, but do you feel like though you're more contr- more in control. You're not having to necessarily answer to a PR firm. Or... I never did, which I admit doesn't help the cause earlier either. <laughs> so I always kind of did what I wanted to do. I think now that I can do more damage to myself more quickly <laughs> than ever before. Well, Jason, we really appreciate you taking a few minutes to talk to us. It's been a real pleasure. You're, oh, you're, yeah, no, this has been a meaningful one. Very, you're a very interesting guy, and, and you're a funny guy, too. Oh, thank you. Well, uh, anytime, guys. I, I appreciate you guys taking the time to talk. Thank you Absolutely. so much, Jason. Thank you.